I'd like to thank Small Town Murders for sponsoring today's episode. Chances are, if you're hanging out here with us at Cold Case Detective, you're a true crime fanatic, often wondering what it would be like to solve a mystery or murder case as the lead investigator. Well, I have good news. From the creators of Angry Birds comes Small Town Murders, the fastest growing mobile puzzle game with over two million players and counting, in which you get to crack the case all from the comfort of your mobile device. Small Town Murders is a free puzzle game with a clever and colorful crime-filled story rooted in the mystery genre. All you need to bring to the table is your detective skills and passion for deductive reasoning. As you investigate through thousands of exciting levels, solving satisfying puzzles, uncovering evidence, and crossing off suspects you interact with within each story. It's not all puzzles though. On your sleuthing journey, you can search through detailed crime scenes, putting your Hawkeye to the test to pinpoint murder weapons or other items to assist your casework. And to make the narrative that much better, you can interview suspects too allowing the game's unique characters to fill you in on their suspicious secrets and gawking gossip. Download the game right now to secure the special promotion where new users receive in-game boosters as additional hints for those tricky puzzles that could stump even Sherlock Holmes himself. It's the perfect challenge for your inner detective, so download Small Town Murders now using the link in the description of this video and begin the investigation. We have all been frustrated by the outcome of a criminal trial at some point in our lives, whether it's a perpetrator getting a lenient sentence or worse, escaping justice entirely. The criminal justice system is phenomenally complex and important as it gives those accused of crimes a fair chance to state their case and for justice to be done humanely. But some criminal defenses are unlike anything you've ever heard or seen before and seem to go above and beyond to mock the system which is prosecuting them. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be examining three of these incredible, unbelievably bizarre criminal defenses. The Twinkie Defense In 1978, 32-year-old Daniel James White was a US politician who was serving on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors from District 8. While he had once been a popular and well-liked figure in the city, in the months leading up to the events in November that year, Daniel had begun to butt heads with the other members of the board an increasing amount. On November 10th of 1978, he handed in his letter of resignation, noting his dissatisfaction with the corrupt inner workings of politicians in San Francisco, as well as citing his own personal financial concerns. Four days later, Daniel reversed his resignation. His supporters lobbied him to seek reappointment to the board from Mayor George Moscone, who initially agreed, but then later refused, 
likely urged by some of the other board members including staunch gay rights activist Harvey Milk, who had once been friends with Daniel, but now often conflicted with him. Then, on November 27th, the unthinkable happened. Daniel entered City Hall through an open first floor window, carrying a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver and 10 rounds of ammunition. Sneaking into the building this way allowed the 32-year-old to avoid the newly installed metal detectors. From here, Daniel entered the mayor's office. He pleaded with George Moscone to be reinstated as a supervisor, but was refused. As a result, George was shot in the shoulder and chest before being shot twice in the head. But Daniel didn't stop there. He made his way to the office of Harvey Milk, walking casually as he reloaded his weapon. Inside, Daniel shot Harvey five times. Daniel then fled, but turned himself into San Francisco's Northern Police Station, where he'd previously worked as an officer. During the trial, the defense argued that Daniel was severely depressed and not capable of premeditated murder. They proclaimed that this meant he could not be guilty of first-degree murder and pushed for a lesser charge. A forensic psychiatrist, Martin Blinder, testified to the 32-year-old's extreme depression, noting that prior to his mental illness, Daniel had been highly health-conscious. Now his diet consisted of sugary junk food and snacks. It was argued during the trial that he was so depressed, so sleep-deprived, and so bloated on junk food that not only did Daniel lack the ability to concoct such a plan, but that his state of mind had been thrown off kilter by the amount of unhealthy food he consumed, and that this negatively affected his mental state. He was trapped in a cycle of binging on junk food because he was depressed, and being depressed because his diet was so filled with unhealthy snacks. This defense was sensationalized in the media and dubbed the Twinkie defense. Although it seems laughable, it actually worked. Daniel White was ultimately found guilty of voluntary manslaughter instead of first degree murder. As a result, the city of San Francisco rampaged in what is known as the White Knight Riot. The LGBTQ community in particular was furious about the light sentence which had been handed down to Harvey Milk's murderer. Daniel was sentenced on May 21st, 1979 to seven years behind bars, but he served only five before being paroled on January 7th, 1984. He spent his first year as a free man in Los Angeles, but he wished to return to his home of San Francisco. Although the new mayor made a formal statement asking him not to return, Daniel did so anyway. He attempted to rebuild his life with his children and repair the damage done to his marriage, but it all swiftly fell apart. On October 21st, 1985, Daniel White took his own life. He passed away in his garage from carbon monoxide poisoning. Today, his name is synonymous with the infamous Twinkie defense. The PMS and PMDD Defense In 1980, a 29-year-old barmaid in London named Sandy Craddock, also sometimes listed in sources as Sandy Smith, stabbed her co-worker to death. However, this was far from Sandy's first crime. The young woman had a long history of almost 30 charges, including convictions for arson, assault, and vandalism. 
She was also noted to have had 18 suicide attempts, and in the months leading up to the needless slaying, she had been placed on probation for carrying a knife and threatening to kill a police officer. Initially, Sandy told the authorities that she could not remember carrying out the execution. She spent 10 months in prison awaiting trial. Meanwhile, her father came forward with her diary, explaining that upon reading it, he had concluded that her erratic, violent behavior came once a month, every month. This led to his belief that Sandy's savagery came with her monthly period. A gynecological endocrinologist based in London named Dr. Katerina Dalton agreed with this conclusion. She had been studying such cases since 1948. In the modern day, Sandy is not believed to have simply suffered from ordinary PMS, but from a condition known as premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, which is essentially the more intense version of PMS. PMDD has physical symptoms, ranging from skin disorders to migraines and excessive tiredness, and mental symptoms, such as extreme anxiety and severe mood swings. Even today, however, PMDD is not widely researched, and so not as much is known about the condition. Sandy's lawyers used the extreme PMS as part of her defense, in which she claimed diminished responsibility due to the condition. Incredibly, the judge presiding over her trial actually accepted that it was a mitigating factor in the incident, as it turned the young woman into, quote, a raging animal each month. She was ultimately convicted of manslaughter, but served no further jail time. After her conviction, Sandy continued to see Dr. Dalton and lived with her parents. She received daily hormonal treatments. In the two years following the slaying, her hormone treatment was adjusted several times, but in both instances, it resulted in Sandy's violent rage. The first time, she threw a brick through a window, while the second time, she attempted to commit suicide and also carried a knife into a police station. Strangely, Sandy's case was just the first of several to use the PMS defense in the 80s and 90s. On December 16, 1980, a 37-year-old divorced mother of two named Christine English ran over her boyfriend with her car after an argument. 31-year-old Barry Kitson was killed by the impact. On November of 1981, Christine pled guilty to manslaughter, but was discharged from custody and was only deprived of her driver's license for a year. Dr. Dalton also played a role in this case and noted that the 37-year-old hadn't eaten for nine hours on the day of the execution, which she believed caused Christine to become aggressive and impatient due to the adrenaline being released into her bloodstream. Several years later, in 1986, author and screenwriter Anna Reynolds, who was just 17 at the time, killed her mother with a hammer. Anna was initially convicted for murder and spent two years in prison, but the outcome was overturned based on the evidence of, once again, Dr. Dalton. Then in the United States in 1991, a surgeon named Geraldine Richer was pulled over in Virginia for driving erratically. She was found to be over the alcohol limits, and she threatened the police officer who pulled her over, attempting to assault them. Despite this, Geraldine was acquitted of drunk driving. PMS was used as a mitigating factor in her defense. Dr. Dalton and the PMS or PMDD defense have been heavily criticized over the last several decades. 
A hormonal researcher named Linda Burke said the results of Christine and Sandy's trials, quote, imply that women are the victims of their biology and are in a position of diminished responsibility. Other experts, along with women's rights advocates and feminists alike, have said much the same thing. In recent years, the PMS defense is infrequently used and often does not result in any sort of acquittal or diminished responsibility plea. The Matrix Defense The Matrix Defense is the term applied to legal cases in which the defense is based on the Matrix films. For those of you unfamiliar with the series, The Matrix depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated or computer-generated reality. For those using The Matrix defense, the general idea is that they believe they are in the simulation and that nothing they do here matters in the real world. Over the last several decades since the explosively popular film franchise was released, there have been many instances of criminals using the Matrix defense to explain their behavior. In July of 2002, 37-year-old Ohio native Tonda Lynn Ansley shot Miami University professor Sherry Lee Corbett, who was just 55 years old at the time. Sherry was shot multiple times in the head. The horrific crime was carried out in broad daylight, in full view of witnesses. When authorities arrived on the scene, Tonda told them that their world wasn't real and that they were all living in a computer simulation. She added that she committed a lot of crimes in the Matrix and said she believed Sherry was part of a conspiracy to brainwash her and ultimately kill her. A year later, in June 2003, Tonda was found not guilty for taking the life of Sherry Corbett by reason of insanity. The defense had managed to prove that Tonda believed she was inside a computer simulation, and as such, she felt entitled to kill any perceived threats. Several years earlier, in 2000, a 27-year-old computer science student who had been attending San Francisco State University executed a woman named Ella Wong, from whom he had been renting a room. In the brutal crime, Vadim Misigas skinned his landlady before chopping her up. He was later found by authorities wandering around with a knife while high on drugs and was overall acting bizarrely. He told police that he had been sucked into the matrix when he took Ella's life. In the end, Vadim was declared as mentally incompetent and unfit for trial and was instead institutionalized. Then, in February of 2003, 19-year-old Joshua Cook from Oakton, Virginia, took a shotgun and fired into his father seven times and his mother twice. After doing so, he dialed 911 and told the dispatcher what exactly had happened. From here, Joshua waited at the front of his house for authorities to arrive. He was unarmed and slipping from a can of fizzy juice when they appeared. Investigators described the 19-year-old as soft-spoken and well-behaved. Inside the house, they found that Joshua had a large Matrix poster in his room and discovered that he favored wearing the long black trench coats worn by characters in the movie. Initially, it was believed that he was obsessed with the film and thought he was in a simulation, with it being said by his lawyer that he, quote, harbored a bona fide belief that he was living in the virtual reality of the Matrix. However, authorities began to poke holes in this story. 
Among other things, it was pointed out that Joshua had told the 911 dispatcher that he knew he would get the death penalty for his actions. This indicated that he was able to establish right from wrong after all. Ultimately, Joshua Cook pled guilty and was sentenced to 40 years for the brutal slaying of his parents. The Matrix defense is not a new thing. It is thought to have been preceded by the 1976 film Taxi Driver Defense, which was used by John Hinckley when he was caught attempting to assassinate then-president Ronald Reagan. In his defense, Hinckley's obsession with actress Jodie Foster was noted. He attempted to kill the president to gain her attention and impress her. Between 1994 and 2003, at least a dozen murders were linked to people who had watched the famous film Natural Born Killers, which focuses on a disturbed couple who become mass murderers. However, none of them managed to convince the jury that the film made them carry out whatever heinous crime they'd been accused of. For a short time in the early 2000s, there was some panic that The Matrix was taking over courtrooms in the same way it took over cinemas, but experts claimed that the insanity defense, whether it was influenced by The Matrix films or not, was a hard case to argue. It is reportedly used in around 1% of cases and has a success rate of only around 25%. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're hungry for more true crime content, you can check out our latest documentary on the disappearance of Tara Calico right here on the channel. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.